Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. In a previous lesson, we spent some time talking about William Tyndall. Some people say William Tyndale. Depends on, really, I suppose, your preference. But I now call him William Tyndall. I believe that's the proper British pronunciation of the name. We took some time to speak of William Tyndall, and we took time to talk about the wonderful work he did. We in the English-speaking Christian world have been blessed by his dedication to the spread of the gospel. In fact, Christian or not, the English-speaking world owes a great deal to him. You see, many credit William Tyndall with helping to shape a language that is today spoken by over a billion people worldwide. Some people say two billion. But, you know, it wasn't the language that he had passion for. It was the book. He set out to make a book available to all and a language was born. To him, it was of the utmost importance to put the Bible in the hands of every man, woman, and child. Now, to be certain, before Tyndall, there were plenty of Bibles. All that was really required was the ability to read Latin, which was, of course, the official language of the church. And for most of the Christian era prior to the late Middle Ages, there really was only one church what we today know as the Roman Catholic Church. Now, there were at times, at that time, splinter groups and factions. But realistically speaking, the entire world of Christianity was administered by the church. And in Tyndall's time and in Tyndall's land, the center of all of that was Rome. And Latin was spoken in Rome. And therefore, the official language of the worldwide church was Latin, even though relatively few people outside of Rome spoke it. And because the official language of the church was Latin, the official Bible of the church was written in Latin. The official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church from about the end of the 4th century through Tyndall's time all the way up until, believe it or not, 1979, the official church Bible was the Vulgate Bible. By the way, the word Vulgate is derived from a Latin term that means common. The Vulgate Bible, written in Latin, simply means the common Bible. Common in the sense that it was commonly used by all. Now, the the irony and inaccuracy of that is almost laughable. 
but perhaps not so for many of the learned men of the 15th and 16th centuries, such as Tyndall. By that time, by the 15th and 16th century, the languages of Europe, even the so-called Romance languages, which as the name implies can trace their origin to the Roman language or what we call Latin, even those languages, along with most of the other languages in Europe, were quite distinct from Latin. Now, having in essence a foreign language Bible in Europe was seen by these loving, caring scholars and clergymen as having the effect of robbing the educated classes of the richness of Scripture. Therefore, slowly but surely, as the middle of the second millennium approached and the spread of Christianity was complete in Europe, Bibles in the native languages of the people started making their way through the church world. And it was around this time that William Tyndall, the Englishman, tasked himself with producing a Bible in the then newly forming modern English language. However, unlike so many previous translations that relied heavily on the Latin versions, Tyndall set out to use the original language manuscripts as his source material. Many of those previous Bible translations were taken from the Latin resources, the Vulgate and others. And when they did, when they were produced as translations of the Latin, all it did was help to propagate the errors, the confusing language, and the limited scholarship of those earlier works. As we've said before, translations from translations are inferior by nature. So Tyndall wanted a clean start, and he decided to go straight to the most pristine sources possible, the Hebrew and the Greek. Now, as noble as that sounds, it was also very challenging. You see, many words in those original languages don't translate well into the English. And so Tyndall had to be literally creative and his creativity was so successful that we still feel its impact to this day. Tyndall, simply in an effort, and this was his effort, it wasn't to shape a language. He was attempting to translate difficult words into English. And when he did, he actually invented words, as we've already discussed. We, we dedicated an entire lesson on some of these very commonly used words, such as Jehovah and Passover and scapegoat. Well, there is another word that we did not cover in that previous lesson, and it was that word that really started me down this path of discovering the genius, genius of Tyndall. Now, we are in the midst of a series. If I have not made that clear, we are in the midst of a series. The first installment of, that, of this series happened last week. This is the second. There will be a third and probably a fourth and maybe a fifth in this series. 
So I'm just letting you know I am in this early part of the lesson referring to our previous installment in this series, which again happened last week. Now, as I said last week, we went over some of these words that Tyndall invented. And one of the words we didn't get to is really the reason why this series was born. And But I must say, the word that we will be discussing today, I do not believe is Tyndall's best work. Bold? Yes. Interesting? Yes. Good? Well, I, I'm not convinced. The word I'm speaking of is atonement. This, of course, is a well-known, oft-used word. So well-known and oft-used, as a matter of fact, that no one would ever dream of actually doing a little research on it. Except for me, of course. And, you know, to, to be honest, I love these sorts of things, as you know. I love to investigate the commonplace, the well-known, unquestioned things of the church. I love to investigate just to see how accurate our understanding is of those commonly known things. I like to challenge us to make a personal connection to our understanding of the things of God, because I will tell you, if you are a dedicated Christian living for Him, and it shows, you're going to be challenged. There will be someone who will challenge you on your faith, and they're going to ask you, well, what does the word atonement actually mean? You have to be prepared. If someone were to come up to me and say, you know, I know I knew Catherine when she was a teenager and she was quite the shoplifter. You know, she used to steal all sorts of things and she smoked crack and she used to drink wild turkey. I'll say, hang on a minute. But I know Catherine. I've talked to lots of people in her family no one ever mentioned any of that. I know Catherine. I've taken the time to get to know her because I love her. No one can challenge me on the kind of person Catherine is because I know her so well. No one can get me to doubt the character of my wife because I've taken the time to get to know her. I know the kind of person she is. That is how we should be with Jesus. You know, I love when people tell me, you know, Jesus was a good guy, but he wasn't any better than a, than a prophet. Oh, is that right? Well, that's not the way he viewed himself. He said, before Abraham was, I was. That doesn't sound like a, a mere human prophet. That sounds like somebody who's pretty old, an eternal being, if nothing else. How do you know that? Well, it's, 
what he said. It's in his Bible. I took the time to understand it. You cannot be challenged on your knowledge of Jesus if you've taken the time to discover who he really is. I want us to make sure that we just don't accept things on their face value, that we take the time to see why they are what they are, and that's the purpose of this program. I want to instill a desire in you to go beyond the what and pursue the why. Now, in this case, we may have just bitten off more than we can chew. You see, it didn't take me very long to discover that this word atonement is actually a very difficult word to define. Now, I'm sure more than a few of you thought you misheard. Most of you would say, well, I, I know the definition of the word atonement. And if I said, oh, yeah, well, tell me what your definition, tell me what you know the definition of the word atonement is. I'm fairly certain that it would sound a lot like the following, which happens to be straight from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. In response to my question of you, what is what does the word atonement mean? You might say that it is reparation for an offense or injury, but probably your wording would be less stuffy than the Webster Dictionary definition, but no less on point, I'm sure. You would probably say that atonement means making up for something. Well, that may be what you think that word means today, and I don't argue with you one little bit. I think you're right. But that definition is not what William Tyndall had in mind when he invented it. Now, before I go any further, I do want to state that there is some growing opposition to the notion that Tyndall invented this word. Some claim that variations of it can be found in writings that preceded Tyndall. Well, the point is, discovering who precisely invented this word is not our intention. In this section, we're simply setting up our lesson by looking at how Tyndall viewed the word and how he saw that it applied to God's redemptive plan because it is because of him that we collectively know of this word. It was his use that put it in the Bible and therefore put it in what we know of as church doctrine. Now, let me as we continue, read you a definition because it's important to this discussion. Etymology. Etymology is the history of a linguistic form such as a word shown by tracing its development since its earliest recorded occurrence in the language where it is found by tracing its transmission from one language to another by analyzing it into its component parts by identifying its cognates in other languages or by tracing it and its cognates to a common ancestral form in an ancestral language. That's Merriam-Webster's definition of the word etymology. 
when I first started paying closer attention to the things of God, when God's word started becoming important to me, everything seemed new. I wanted to know why for everything. Why do we have the Bible? Why is he called Christ? Why did God free the Israelites from Egypt? Why is there a tabernacle? Sometimes I found the answers. Sometimes I didn't. But one thing I did learn is there are lots of people who should know the answers, but didn't. Now, when I some years ago, came across the concept of the atonement, I did what I do best. I asked why. Now, this was one of the first times that I realized that people don't know as much as they should. People that are considered experts. You see, when I asked why it was called the atonement, Well, I heard what I thought was a very silly explanation. I was told that atonement meant at one mint. Have you heard that explanation before? Atonement, we are told, means at one mint. In other words, atonement is being in the state or condition of being at one. Being at one, meaning in unity, being one, unified. Now, as I said, when I first heard that, I felt that it it couldn't be true. It seemed an unnecessarily simplified definition. In fact, it seemed, dare I say, dumbed down. I mean, there is a lot of that going on in the church world these days, at least the American church. Don't we see that all the time? Your pastors... Teachers and priests, they don't want to deliver the tougher messages to you either because they don't think you can handle the truth or they don't grasp the concept themselves. In your church, it's a pretty good guess of mine that you are rarely given the meat, just the milk. And dare I say, a lot of you listen to this program just because of that. I think that your knowledge of God's word is unfulfilled, is going unfulfilled where you worship. That's okay. That's why why we exist. We want to make sure that you hear it all, the easy and the difficult. And frankly, we prefer to deliver the difficult messages because we know there's so little of it being taught. And besides, we trust you. We believe you can grasp the deeper meanings of God's Word, and not just because we think you're smart, but because we believe that Jesus did as he said he would. Remember this from John 16, 7 and 8? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus speaking. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. That just means the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, 
is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. We believe that Jesus meant that. We believe that Jesus did that. That when he left, he gave us the paraclete, he gave us the spirit of truth. Therefore, we know that you're not relying on your own intellect to figure this out, grand though it may be. In fact, if you did rely on your own intellect, when people begin to rely on their own intellect, that's when error creeps in. That's how heresies are born. That's how the truth gets corrupted. And that's why we, before we begin every lesson, we ask God to send us his spirit to teach us so that we don't rely on our own intellect. Listen, everything that I tell you about investigating your own personal beliefs is a very risky, very dangerous thing to say if you don't rely on the Holy Spirit. If you do not open up your heart to the Holy Spirit and you take my advice of investigating and deciding for yourself what God's Word says, you're going to be in error. I want to make sure that that's clear. When I advise you to take the things of God and study them so that you can stand firm on your beliefs, I'm assuming you know that you also should be praying for the Holy Spirit to assist you in that effort. Is that clear? When you are working with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth sent to you by Jesus himself, you will uncover truth. Listen, none of this is, none of this is beyond your ability to process. Well, wait a minute, John. Are you saying we're going to understand it all? No, that's not what I said. I said you will be able to process it. Some of it, you will have the wisdom to set aside and say, I don't understand this now, but I know it's true. But you see, the church, by and large, doesn't take Jesus at his word. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit is present, assisting you as they deliver their sermons to you, so they water them down. They don't want to take the risk of you getting bored or frustrated or angry because you're not understanding what they're saying. So you hear a lot of foolishness in church. For example, I once heard someone say that the word justify is merely some sort of contraction of the phrase, just as if I. So when, when Jesus justified us by keeping the law, we are treated just as if I did. Now that's... That's really hard for me to get behind, but let's just deal with one controversy at a time. 
Today, we're talking about at-one-ment, atonement. Is it at-one-ment? That's what we are told, and believe it or not, and you'll find this in a minute, even the Oxford Dictionary says that. Now, this is going to be one of those lessons where you and I really have to count on the spirit of truth to guide us because this is not going to be easy. But let's do what we can. As you know, we celebrate the communion regularly in this ministry. It's really one of my favorite things to do. I love to share the table of the Lord with you over this broadcast. But here, like so many things, we take a bit of a different approach. You see, we typically spend at least some time going into God's Word before we partake so that we can be better positioned to discern the Lord's body when the time comes. I figure that if we spend some time looking at the scriptural details of the work of Christ before we take the body and blood, then we are better able to honor him at the table. And that's what it's all about. It is to remember him. So I prepare lessons that I at least hope achieve that goal. I prepare lessons that help us to discern the Lord's body and blood. Well, while I was doing some research for one of those communion lessons, I came across the word atonement, and I decided to look at it etymologically. And that's why I quoted the definition of etymology at the beginning of the section. I won't repeat it. But we did say that etymology... First of all, traces a word's development from its earliest recorded occurrence. Well, atonement first appeared ostensibly in Tyndall's English translation Bible. And if nothing else, really, Tyndall was the one who really gave life to the word atonement. If he didn't invent it, he certainly could be considered the father of of the word atonement. Now, I realize that's a silly thing to say, but you get the point. So when I began my etymological journey for the meaning of the word atonement, it led me to William Tyndale. The most complete, reliable, earliest recorded occurrence of the word atonement is found in Tyndale's work. Now, that doesn't necessarily do us a whole lot of good because he didn't really explain to us why he used the word. And if he didn't specifically explain why he used the word, now this is this is getting going longer than I expected. And I I, I think we might be extending out our lesson. Anyways, we'll keep moving. If William Tyndall didn't specifically explain why he used the word atonement, and we should probably give him a break. I mean, he was busy writing an entire Bible in English and running for his life, and he did spend a lot of time in prison before ultimately being murdered by the church. I think we can kind of forgive him for not 
satisfying our curiosity by spelling out the reasons for using so many of these words. But since we don't have his information, we have to take the next step in the etymologic process. You remember what part two of the etymologic process is. We trace the word's transmission from one language to another by analyzing its component parts. Well, the Oxford Dictionary, remember I told you we would turn to the Oxford Dictionary. The Oxford Dictionary says, now rather unconvincingly, in my opinion, that the English word atonement is influenced, that's the word the Oxford Dictionary uses, atonement is influenced by the Latin word adunamentum, which means unity. Now, I don't mean to hand you another controversy, but this word atonement really puzzles me, and I really don't mean to question the Oxford Dictionary, certainly. But if adunamentum is the etymologic parent of the word atonement, and I'm trying to figure out what the meaning of atonement actually is, then wouldn't we expect to find the word adjunamentum in the Latin versions of the Bible since the Oxford Dictionary says they're related? Now, I don't want to drag this one out, but let's just look at a few examples. Now, remember, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a student just like you. Just because you're not a scholar doesn't mean you couldn't follow the process. Doesn't mean you can't follow the etymologic process. It's, it's not that complicated. So keep in mind, here I'm just following a logical path, as logical as I can think of to follow, to try and make as much sense of this as I can. Now, before we go on, you may be thinking, is this really a good use of my time? And I, th I think that's a fair question. Here's my answer. It's going to sound like I'm a, playing a broken record, for those of you that know what records are. In this ministry, we want you to question your beliefs. Now, to many, that sounds like rebellion. It's nothing of the sort. I want you to be able to stand on your beliefs, as I've already mentioned. I want you to activate the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind to cement the things of God so firmly in your spirit that the attacks of the devil will simply glance off of you. Remember our discussion on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Do you not believe we are in the evil day? Do you not believe that people are beginning to question whether the Bible is true or not? Without doing any research, one way or another. They're telling you, oh, that's, just, that's just an old person's book. It doesn't apply today. We're too sharp for that book. That's the very definition of the evil day. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye all ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If you're just going to go about mindlessly nodding in the affirmative or ignorantly blurting out amen when someone tells you anything about the Bible, you're making yourself vulnerable. Listen, Paul warned us, Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men. That means trickery. They're going to try to trick you. I, I'm trying to protect you from that. I'm trying to encourage you to protect yourself. Know your Bible. That's why we look as, at as many details as we can. Trust me, the devil is not in these details. So back to the word atonement. A moment ago, I mentioned that the Oxford Dictionary tells us that the word atonement is influenced by the Latin word adunamentum, which, as we said, means unity. As we are told, means unity. Now, let me say once again that I'm not a linguist. I'm just a regular guy looking for answers. I do, however, have access to a few Latin dictionaries. And can I say that not one of them actually has an entry for the word adunamentum, nor from what I can tell any form of the word? Likewise, as one would then expect, the word adunamentum does not appear in the Latin versions of the Bible. What's your point? If Tyndall derived the word atonement, remember, we're on an etymologic quest. We're studying a word. We're trying to determine the provenance, if you will, of the word atonement. Isn't atonement important to you? We are told that Jesus bought our atonement. If someone says to you, well, what does that mean? If you're trying to lead someone to Christ and you said to them, Jesus bought us our atonement, they're gonna, and they say, well, what does atonement mean? Well, now you can tell them, hopefully. The Oxford Dictionary tells us that this word is influenced by the word adjunamentum. I don't agree. My research, limited though it most definitely is, does not reveal the existence of the word adjunamentum outside of this entry in the Oxford Dictionary that is defining the word atonement. Now, even more puzzling, and far more important to our discussion, frankly, the word adjunamentum is not found in the Vulgate version of the Bible, which you remember is the Latin translation. All right, let's look at this another way. 
The Oxford Dictionary, the only place I can find this word adjunamentum, mentions that adjunamentum means unity in the English. The places in the English language, therefore, where the word unity is used, and there are only three places, you would expect the word adjunamentum to appear in the Latin versions of the Bible. Now, Listen, my intention is not to cast aspersions on anyone, and most certainly not William Tyndall. Ask my family. I'm driving them a little crazy about this man, William Tyndall. I talk about him quite regularly around the house these days. The more I read about the man, the more I love him. And the more I wish there was someone like him today. Now, to say he was a courageous man would be insulting to his own ears if he were to hear it. He did what he did and endured what he endured. And perhaps we'll teach a lesson on William Tyndall one of these days. But bravery is not William Tyndall's most obvious quality. It wasn't bravery that motivated Tyndall. His most obvious quality was devotion, followed by his love for, his, for God and his word. That is what defines Tyndall. Very, very few people are willing to die for their beliefs in the Christian church. People are willing to die for the reputation. People are willing to die for money. People are willing to die for love, for country, for flag. I get that. How many people are willing to die for God's word. William Tyndall died for his devotion to God's word. It's a rare person of history who does not betray a dark side somewhere in their story. Tyndall is one of those rarities. Now, perhaps the complete lack of anything, even the slightest unseemly of his character, is due directly to what motivated his life's work. I mean, he himself summed it up when he said, quote, there is no work better than to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle, all are one. To wash dishes and to preach are all one as touching the deed. To please God. Oh, if we only adhered to this same philosophy, then the world would be a much better place. But Tyndall not only said this, but he loved it. He lived it. Sorry, he loved it. He lived it. So as I said a moment ago, my intention is not to criticize this truly holy man. 
but as with all man-made systems and creations, I will do my fair share of questioning. I mean, after all, you can disagree with someone without wishing them ill will, despite what our hypercritical, hypersensitive age may tell you, it is possible to respect someone and not hold their viewpoint on some matters of life. Some of my closest and dearest friends have very differences of opinion with me. I love them no less, and I, I hope they love me no less. The vast majority of what Tyndall wrote, I agree with. And you know, actually not saying that I don't agree with this invented word atonement. I'm just saying it hasn't been proven to me as a good translation. One more time. The definition of atonement that I refer to as the one I disagree with is the definition that states that what he meant by it was unity with God at one meant with God. I only disagree with it because I cannot see from the original how we came to use that meaning, neither in the Old Testament nor the New Testament. And as I said, since Tyndall, to my knowledge, didn't leave us any explanation as to why he used that meaning, I have to do my own research. And I must say, I'm not convinced. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, geez, John, this is an odd lesson. Why are we going through this exercise just to disprove one silly little word? Well, I will admit this is a bit unusual for us. It has a far more casual, personal-to-me tone. But as I always do, I'm trying to practice what I preach. I'm demonstrating to you. I'm putting an action right in front of you. My advice to always make your beliefs your own. And listen, Tyndall, he himself would have wanted me to go through this exercise. He was very clear that he was not opposed to scrutiny of his work. He encouraged it. He never considered his translations to be beyond question. His reputation was not important to him. Your salvation is important to him. Well, I can't fully accept that at one mint is a correct translation on face value. So I'm investigating and I'm taking you with me. Yes, we will even question the great William Tyndall if the Spirit so moves us. So with the time left, let's look at the original languages of the Bible and see what words Tyndall says at one mint fits. In other words, let's look at the original languages, bump them up against the word at one mint and see if it fits. Now, of course, we can't cover all of them. The word appears dozens of times in the Bible, but I don't think we have to. Just a few will do. So let's begin with the very instance, the very first instance of the word atonement in the English Bible. It happens to be Exodus 29:33. We'll read it from the King James, which is largely the same as Tyndall's version, but far easier to read. Don't worry, the 
part that we want to talk about is exactly the same. Exodus 29:33, And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and sanctify them, but a stranger shall not eat thereof because they are holy. This is just the portion of the instructions as to what is to be done with the sacrifices. Some of the sacrifices were to be burned holy, and some were actually, believe it or not, to be eaten by the priests. That's basically what is going on here in Exodus 29, 33. And you can see that a few words in is our word atonement. Now, as I said, that word is both here in the King James and in Tyndall's Exodus translation. Now, obviously, Tyndall put it there first since the King James was still several decades hence. Tyndall's Bible is several decades older than the King James. Therefore, he put the word atonement in there first. Therefore, we can credit and we need to question Tyndall as to why it's being there. The King James translators, like they did for most of their work, simply carried the word atonement to their version. Here in the original Hebrew text, here what existed in the original Hebrew text was the word kafar. Now, if you're a regular to this program, you've heard us use the word and teach on the word kafar before. Strong's Hebrew, now Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary says that kafar means to cover. Now, we're just getting started in this section of the lesson, so I believe it's going to start getting a little confusing. So let's make sure we keep our focus sharp. I know we've been here for almost an hour, but let's, let's make sure we stay focused. The word kafar, according to the academic definition means to cover. Now remember, what we're doing here is to try and discover the aptness of the use of the word atonement. Atonement, Tyndall decided to use in place of the word kafar. We're trying to discover if the definition of unity is appropriate. Is at one minute a good substitute word in the Bible? Atonement is the English word found in Exodus 29:33, and it is directly translating the Hebrew word kafar. I know that I am repeating myself, but I, I know this is also a heavily information-rich program, and I want to make sure you don't get lost. I want to make sure that you and I are together on this because this is important. This is God's word. God left us a love letter that we call the Bible. And we want to go over every word. We want to make sure it makes sense to us. Well, what is the definition of the word kafar? Is it atonement? Let's see. Now, there is a minor amount of controversy regarding this word, but as I said, Strong's Hebrew and Greek Dictionary and most other resources say that kafar is a primitive root word that literally means to cover, and then Strong's adds this part to it to mean to cover specifically with bitumen. 
That is the original meaning of the root word kafar. Bitumen, by the way, is an ancient type of tar. Now, I realize this is where some confusion is starting to go in. So let's quickly jump back one book. To illustrate the use of the original meaning of kafar, let's read Genesis 6.14, which is the first time that this word is used in the Bible, the first time the word kafar is used. Genesis 6.14, And make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Now you see there that the English word pitch is used twice in Genesis 6.14. And by the way, I quoted the verse from the King James again, but the Tyndall Bible is essentially the same. In fact, this part that we're discussing is identical. So the English word pitch in Genesis 6.14, and thou shalt make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. The English word pitch is used both as a verb and a noun. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Pitch is just another word, actually, for tar. And we use the word tar as both a verb and a noun as well. When we say to tar and feather someone, cruel though that may sound, that's using the word tar as a verb. When you tar a roof, that's a verb. I'm going to tar the roof. Same thing here, to pitch the roof. Listen, I know that most of us grasp what God is telling Moses to do, but in order to make a point about the word kafar, let me read a couple other English language versions of this same verse. First, the Amplified Classic. These version names get more complicated all the time. So the Amplified Classic reads, Make yourself an ark of gopher or cypress wood, make in it rooms, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this version, the Amplified Classic, doesn't use the word pitch as verb. It instead uses another verb to communicate the meaning of the word kafar. The first instance of the word pitch in the King James version of Genesis 6.14 is translating the Hebrew word kafar. Here, the Amplified decided to use the verb to cover. Make yourself an ark of gopher or cypress wood. Make in it rooms and cover it inside and out with pitch. The Amplified decided to use the word cover instead of pitch. It decided to translate the Hebrew verb kafar to cover. By the way, so does the Christian Standard Bible, the Contemporary English Bible, as well as the International Standard Bible and the equally respected New International Version Bible, the NIV. In fact, most modern English versions use the verb to cover to translate the word kafar with a few smatterings of words like to coat or to seal. Now, I don't mean to be tedious, but I'm going to give you one more version to make a point. 
one more version of Genesis 6.14 to make a point. We're going to go all the way back to the Wycliffe Bible, as you know, is in Middle English. And it was first published in the 14th century. Listen to this. Make thou to thee a ship of wood, hewn and plain. Thou shalt make dwelling places in the ship, and thou shalt anoint it with pitch, within and without forth. Now, can I say I don't think this is a good translation of the word kafar at all? But it does give us an insight into the nuances of the original word kafar. And perhaps you can see the difficulty these nuances present in translating it. Modern English versions of the Bible, as we've just shown, have made it clear that we in the English language church of the 21st century have settled on a consensus definition of the word kafar, but it hasn't always been so. From the earliest dawn of modern English, there has been some controversy over this word kafar. John Wycliffe doesn't seem to think that the word kafar is just any old type of covering. Yes, it's a covering, but one with a special meaning. Please grasp the spiritualness of this. John Wycliffe was so sure that this wasn't just some covering, so sure that he actually used an almost silly expression. His translation has God instructing Noah to anoint the ark. I mean, when something or someone is anointed, they're usually covered in something. Well, in religious matters back in Bible days, anointing was a very special action using a very special oil. Here the translators of the Wycliffe Bible were faced with the word kafar, and they decided to retain the undeniable spiritual meaning of the word. And you know what? We can't fault them too terribly because there is such a strong sense of the, sense of the spiritual in all of the other uses of the word kafar in the Bible. When we come across the Hebrew word kafar in the English, we see words like reconcile and forgive and forgiven and cleansed and appeased all throughout the Old Testament, wherever the word kafar was originally used, and of course, the extensive use of the word atonement. But so far, there is no shred of connection that I can see between the meaning of at one mint and the word it sometimes translates kafar. John, who do you think you are criticizing William Tyndall? Well, first of all, criticize is a strong word these days. I would prefer, it sounds like you're apologizing. I'm not apologizing. You keep bringing this up. And you keep talking to yourself. I put these in my notes. I put these 
little breaks in my notes because it's important for you to understand this isn't just some random decision to sound smarter than William Tyndale. I'm not criticizing him. I'm auditing him. I'm auditing the idea that Kafar carries with it a sense of unity, of at-one-ment. I want us to get as close as we can to what God said about himself. He left his word for us to study, not the commentators, not the experts, not the translators. And, and of course, all of that is immensely important. But in the end, it's what he says he says that matters, not what Tyndall says he says, or Wycliffe says he says, and certainly not what Tomasi says he says. Be curious. Tyndall died to give you the chance to seek a personal relationship with God, a relationship that's shaped through his word. And listen, the ultimate point of all this is not to try and discover if Tyndall was right, but rather to try to get you to live the same passion for God's word that Tyndall did. He lived and died for it. And we should be looking to his example because I got to tell you, I think God mightily approved of William Tyndall. Let's try and wrap this up. Last time we were on this topic, this topic of atonement, we discussed a few of the other words that William Tyndall either invented or made commonplace. And in, those, in that previous discussion, we mentioned the two goats, one of which was the scapegoat. Now, if you're not with us that day, I'm going to have to apologize because we don't have time to review that in any sort of depth. Those two goats related to one of the most important of the seven feasts of Israel. It was on the Day of Reconciliation, the Day of Reconciling, Dies Expiationum, something we know today as the Day of Atonement. Those two goats relate to the Day of Atonement. In the Hebrew, it is Yom Kippur. Yom, as we've told you many times in the past, is Hebrew for the English word day. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Kippur, as I am sure you've guessed by now, is a form of kafar. By the way, and I don't usually do this, but I want to say that this section, hopefully the last section in today's lesson, this section is intended to support the definition of kafar as meaning to cover as defined in Strong's Dictionary. I believe the word atonement, the word kafar means to cover. Now, why is that important? Is it just to prove Tyndall wrong? No. In fact, you may be surprised by our eventually, eventual conclusion. Kafar means to cover, and here's my reasoning. One last time, I'm not a scholar, but I do a lot of scholarly research. This conclusion is mine. You must, you mind, you must come up with your own. Kafar means to cover. Here's why. There's another Tyndall word that's found in the Bible. 
and only in the Bible. And you'll, when I tell you what it is, you'll see why it's only a Bible word. It's technically two words, but the two work, words work together so well it feels like one word. Let's quickly read a passage that's quite familiar to chapel regulars. It's part of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Exodus 25, 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now this is one of the most fascinating translations I have ever read. The word mercy seat is very familiar to most Christians as well as most Jews, I hope. Well, Tyndall invented that word. And he did so in order to translate the single Hebrew word kepelreth. Kepreth. In fact, he sort of had to. You see, the previous version in an English-like language, the Middle English, written by John Whitcliffe, they used the word propitiatory there. Propitiatory. Obviously, Whitcliffe decided to translate the Latin. The Vulgate in this spot uses the word propitiatorium. Well, what does that mean? Again, the original word is capelrith. As you may have guessed, capelrith is formed from our dear friend Kafar. Well, that doesn't help me. What in the world is that word capareth describing here? Well, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold is part of the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. As you know, the Ark of the Covenant is a box, a very special and holy box, but at its most basic, the Ark of the Covenant is a box. It contains things. The capareth, the propitiatory, the propitiatorium is the top of the box. The mercy seat, as it was first called by Tyndall, isn't actually a seat at all. It is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And it beautifully and completely and gloriously represents Christ. I don't see any way around it. This is already a long lesson, and we have a long way to go. Well, we have three choices. Number one, I could try and quickly breeze through the rest of this and close out this installment. And there really is no way I can quickly breeze through the significance of the mercy seat and its relationship to the Ark of the Covenant and still be able to explain the meaning of the word atonement. So that's the number one choice, quickly breeze over this. I don't like that one at all. Number two, we could just stay here and finish this out as thoroughly as the subject demands, but I don't think that's a good idea either. After a while, the brain, the heart, and the spirit, they just have too much to process. These are eternal things. Though they sound academic, these are still eternal things. And as temporal beings, we must take time 
to absorb it all. That's choice two. Our third choice is what I think we will do. We're going to come back next week and we're going to pick up our conversation. And by the way, it's probably a good opportunity to teach on the Ark of the Covenant. We haven't done that in a while, and I think the conversation will be of utmost importance to our understanding of atonement, at one covering, and Christ's part in all of it. And that's really all we're trying to do. We try to get you to see Christ in this. It's very easy, believe me, to get caught up in the academics. It's very easy to get bogged down in theology. God's Word is so fascinating that we sometimes forget that it's actually a story about a real person. All of the clever subtleties and the secret hidden treasures, they have a tendency to captivate us. There's there's nothing like this book in all the world. And it doesn't it feel like we just can't get enough? Even after these long lessons, Catherine and Sam are mad at me when I close it out. I know they get it. But the reason for all of that is because it's a book about the most wonderful person that has ever lived. And you know, even a book as enormous as the Bible doesn't even come close to fully capturing its main character. Maybe maybe that's why we keep getting lost in it. We want more because he's so eternal, so perfect, so eternally perfect. This book mesmerizes us because we're in love with the protagonist. But it's important to remind ourselves that we sometimes have to step back and just take it all in. The psalmist used a wonderful word over and over in the Hebrew praise book, Selah. Now, there's no universally agreed upon definition of the word, but I like what Dr. Gene Scott used to say it meant. He said it means think of it. Selah, think of it. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of, the, out of his holy hill. Selah, think of that. It's magnificent to think that the Lord heard me. Who is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. Selah, think of that. We must take time to ponder the wonders of our God. We must take time to meditate on these things. Knowing them is one thing. I mean, we could go on and on and on filling our heads with facts, but unless we sila, we're not deriving the full benefit. So you know what? Come back next week and we'll keep on discussing the beauty of the atonement. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. 
Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.